Okay. A lot of stuff to get settled up here. <laughs> okay. Um, so you all made it up here. You got your Christmas shopping done? <laughs> Afterwards, maybe. <laughs> okay. When, when, I, um, when I'm asked to teach a passage, usually we're given a selection of a few to choose from. But I often agree to teach a passage um, that, that uh, has something in it that really resonates with me. And I would often say, uh, oh, always, of course, I get more than I bargain for. <laughs> but what resonates for me in this uh, chapter, chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, is um, verse 22. So let me just read that to you. Sort of keep that in the back of your minds. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Now, there's two reasons that this uh, verse means a lot to me. First of all, often when I've done something wrong or I've hurt somebody or something that I need to, uh, that is just, I shouldn't have done. um, The first thing I think of is, oh, what sacrificial act can I perform to make this right, make it better? Well, this verse breaks into my thinking. What God really desires is my obedience. He desires a broken and a contrite heart that comes to him. Um, And maybe he would prevent me from doing what I was thinking, what I did. Um, You know, David knew that. David used these verses and he said, when he sinned, he fell before God and he, he said, he confessed, I sinned. And he said, what you desire is a broken and contrite heart. And David had that. And the Lord honored that. Then his power, his Holy Spirit in me, in us, can lead me to actions that reflect his character, that reflect the heart of God instead of my own heart. The other reason that has meant a lot to me is this is a verse that Jesus actually uses about himself. In Hebrews 10, he says that he came in the flesh, just like you and I, you and me, but without sin, to be the one who would fulfill God's desire to have daughters and sons who would grow in the knowledge of him and in connection with him. So what I'd like to do this morning is walk through chapter 15 together and then look at the question of God's unchangeableness. And lastly, to see the remarkable gift of Jesus to make us children of a holy God. Well, up to now, Saul has been a bit of a mixed bag. He's done some foolish things, some wise things, some puzzling things and some heroic things. 
in chapters uh, 8 and 9, we saw all the signs that indicated to Saul and to Samuel that God had chosen Samuel, Saul, to act as king. God was at work in Saul's life. There was no doubt about that. Now we come to chapter 15, a real turning point. There's a real sense of anticipation, almost as if we're on the precipice of something critical. We'll see more of God's character here, and we'll also see Saul's character more clearly. Samuel, God's representative to Saul, has a commission for Saul. And three times in the first two verses, Samuel makes it very clear that this commission is not his advice, but it's God speaking. And God says to Saul, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel when they left Egypt. Do you know what? I find that really encouraging. That God did not forget the hardships his people went through. He knew their problems and when they were in slavery. He knew how hard it was. He heard their cries. He knew the hardships that they had as they traveled through the desert. And different tribes, they had to go through different tribes. After Israel's first battle with the Amalekites, God gave his people a promise in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 18. Now remember, this was a while ago before Saul. God said to them, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you, the weak, the older people, the children. And he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given to you, for an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Now the time for justice has come, and the responsibility has been given to Saul to carry out this destruction. At first, it looks as if Saul is on the move, fulfilling God's promise. He's acting as the king who protects and cares for God's people. He acts graciously, even as he gathers his army, warning a neighboring group of people that to leave the area because they had been kind to Israel and were not included in this destruction. As we read on through verses 7 through 10, the account of what Saul did, we are forced to ask this question. Is this really what God commanded? In verse 3, we are told that this was a holy war. Um, this was, it, it's a Hebrew word for it is harem. And I don't know if you remember, but we talked about that when we talked about Jericho in the book of Joshua. But a harem was a war that actually carries out God's justice. It's not man's revenge. It's God's justice. In brief, this was when a nation had repeatedly opposed God and increased in evil. They were two qualifications that God had made 
for this. God would bring them to judgment when that happened. In Genesis 15, 16, as God makes his covenant promises to Abraham, he tells him that his descendants, the people of Israel, will return to the land when the evilness of the people in the land is complete. And secular history tells us that the Amalekites were evil, even beyond the standards of their own culture. God is not a capricious judge given to temper tantrums. He is a God of holy justice. He operates within the particular culture, that particular culture that his people were part of in a way that the culture would understand. Now, we are rightly horrified by this kind of destruction. It really really is the kind of thing that makes us question things. But Mary Jane Evans in her commentary suggests that our inability to cope with this fact maybe indicates that we have not grasped the awesomeness of the sovereign holy God who will call people to account for their actions. In verse 10 through 12, we see God's response to Saul's disregard of his command. God says, I regret that I have made Saul king. He has turned back from following me and has not performed my commands. Now, regret here, the word regret here um, is such a weak word in our English language. Um, In Hebrew, the word is actually apparently niham, and it implies a deep emotion and concern. God is deeply grieved and sorrowful over Saul's disobedience. Some translations actually use the word repented here for regret. But that word is, is better used when we're talking about sin, and God is without sin. Archer, in his book of Bible Difficulty, says, No wonder God is deeply troubled. He knows all of the trouble and suffering and failure that would come on Saul and his people as a result of Saul's disobedience. Samuel is also angry at hearing God's words. And he pleads with God all night long on Saul's behalf. Samuel had anointed Saul, he had spent time with him, he advised him, and he loved him. Samuel longed for Saul to be a king who would please God. Not only were Samuel's sons a disappointment to him, as we saw in chapter 8, but now Saul, in a sense a spiritual son, has shown his total unsuitability to be a king who was obedient to God's commands and who would represent a holy and just God. Evans, again in her commentary, says, Saul's behavior is a direct affront to God. It's a refusal to understand his holiness. God is deeply involved with his people. He's not a distant observer. What we do matters to him. 
Bergen in his commentary says, God is aware and responsive to the choices made by his people. And he looks for obedience. You know, to me, obedience, I think we think about this with our kids. Uh, it's a sign of loving and honoring and respecting somebody. And obedience delights God. We know that. He tells us that. It brings him joy, just as disobedience grieves him. And, you know, I think we really can understand this in a small way in our own lives. We've all had relationships of trust and known the sadness over betrayal of that relationship. Um, I'll tell you a little story from a long time ago when I was in seventh grade. (laughs) Uh, I've never been good at math. And when I was in seventh grade, we were doing algebra and I hated algebra. (laughs) But anyway, one day the teacher caught me cheating. Well, of course, I went right home and told my parents that I was cheating and she caught me. No, I did not. (laughs) And then came teacher conferences. And the teacher told my mother what I had done. (laughs) Well, you know, the thing that stands out to me about that is my mother's anger and sorrow when she came home. She had trusted me to be trustworthy and not to lie and cheat. Of course, (laughs) she's off on that point. (laughs) Um. You know, she was, she really felt betrayed when the teacher had to tell her this. And it was mostly because I hadn't told her what I had done. It was a painful learning experience for me, believe me. And I, to this day, I, I don't think I got any punishment for that. <laughs> I can't remember. The thing I remember is my mother's reaction. But uh, I don't think she punished me for that. I might have got sent up to my room, but that wasn't so bad. (laughs) Um, But, you know, unfortunately, this kind of betrayal happens in all kinds of relationships. Between husbands and wives, between parents and children, mentors and mentees, bosses and employees. The greater the, the, uh, the commitment that the person has the more painful the betrayal is. And God is a feeling God. He's a loving God. He's a trustworthy God to a much higher and greater degree than we are. He feels joy and betrayal much more deeply than we do, exactly because of his passionate love and holiness. In the following verses, we begin to realize just how far off the mark Saul has come by acting out of his own desires. The first thing he does in verse 12 is set up a monument to himself. Where is the shy young man who hid behind the luggage? Saul had chosen to dishonor God and to honor himself. His accrual of wealth and honor and reputation was of more concern to him than honoring God. He has the audacity to say in verse 13, 
that he has done what God requires. And then he excuses his, his behavior by blaming uh, the people for what he did. He says, they made me do it. What a familiar excuse to us, isn't it? It's a first resort excuse, I think. Let me read um, verses 17 through 23 now. In First Samuel 15. And Samuel said, has the Lord, excuse me, 17. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in sacrifice and burnt offerings as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Samuel has another direct message from God. God reminds Saul that though he was from a small, insignificant tribe, and though he was a nobody, he had been chosen to lead God's people by hearing, listening, obeying as God's kingly representative. But he chose to do his own thing. Another commentary says that God had called him and anointed him, and God would be the one to enable him to be king if he listened and obeyed. You know, as I read this, I wondered a little bit. Are you and I sometimes in a place that we feel we were called to? And yet we've gotten to a point where we feel unwilling to carry it out to completion. Might we be willing to trust in the God who called us to lead us as we lean on him? I think that's a good question to ask ourselves. In verse 19, God says, why did you pounce on the spoil and do evil? Essentially saying, why did you rob me? What an appropriate point for repentance. Saul is confronted with his sin. What will he do? Will he act like David acted when he was confronted with his sin? 
and fell on his face and confessed and and asked for God's forgiveness? Well, instead, Saul claims innocence, blaming the people and justifying their actions with religious reasons. How complicated our excuses for disobedience get. It's almost as if our guilty hearts have to pile up their justifications to get us off the hook. But all the while, God sees our hearts. Israel's history had shown Saul what was important. The times Israel had chosen their own will over obedience always had resulted in failure. From Adam and Eve in the garden, through Exodus, to the judges, and on through the kings, there is example after example of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, but God's continuing, ongoing faithfulness to them. The people actually knew from experience that life was better when they listened and followed God. And Samuel points out that to rebel and choose your own way is taking the place of God, is consulting another advisor, elevating yourself or something else over your creator God. Saul had made himself the source of truth and wisdom. But we see in verse 24 and 25 that Saul still doesn't quite get it. Sorry about that. It's as if at this point, what sounds like a confession is actually Saul saying, oops, I slipped up. The word Saul uses for sin is actually the word overlooked in Hebrew. But then he turns around and he says to Samuel, but let's put a good face on it. Go with me to the people so they will still accept me. But Samuel sees through Saul's self-serving heart. And he refuses. Notice verse 30. Saul says, return with me. So I may bow before the Lord, your God. Samuel understands that Saul doesn't know God as his God. And as we follow Saul's life through the rest of 1 Samuel, it will be clear how Saul continues to give in to his own weaknesses. He allows his jealousy and hostility to David and even to his own son, Jonathan, overwhelm him. He moves deeper and deeper into sin until we finally see in in chapter 28 that Saul actually results to divination, consulting with spirits. Exactly what Samuel had warned him about in verse 23 and what God had forbidden Saul's path reminds me so much of that verse in James, James 1.14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is the inevitable trajectory of sin.
death. As Samuel turns to leave, Saul grabs the hem of Samuel's garment, tearing it, enacting what God had done in his own life by taking the kingship out of Saul's hands. Saul's disobedience was rejecting God. God gave him what he desired. In verse 35, we see that Samuel's prophetic voice, the source of God's wisdom, is silenced in Saul's life. This is a real tragic story. I can see just looking at some of the expressions on your faces. It's really sad and overwhelming. One of the questions that's always asked about this incident, and I think it's probably asked because we're so uncomfortable with it, is doesn't this show that God changes his mind? Now, Numbers 23, which is in your workbook, 2319, testifies that God is not a man, that he should change his mind. And this is only one of a number of scriptures that claim God's unchangeableness. In theological terms, it's called his immutability. Isaiah 14, 24, and 46, 6 through 8, God tells his people, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. And in Malachi 3, verses 6, 17, and 18, the last prophet we hear from for 400 years before Jesus' birth, God reminds his people again, I, the Lord, do not change. I will return for those who fear me and esteem me. And they will be my treasured possession. That's the final promise they hear. And then things go silent until Jesus appears. Boyce, in his book, Foundations of the Christian Faith, says, God never moves from better to worse or worse to better. He never changes from immature to mature. He is perfect forever, different from all other beings. In us, change is impossible to escape. We cannot imagine that. And the last year and a half has certainly shown that to us. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, says, Saul's heart and actions chose to go against God. He moved from what he knew of God growing into the state he had chosen to be. That's a pretty impactful statement. God is unchangeable in his essential character. His attributes, his wisdom, his power, his justice, his goodness, his truth, and his holiness, these never increase or decrease. And this should really be a comfort to us, an encouragement to us. His character is our security. We can rely on him and his promises. His purposes will be accomplished. This is our hope and our joy. He is a faithful God, full of mercy, who plans and purposes what is good for his people. I found a very helpful explanation of immutability in Gerald Bray's book, The Doctrine of God, And it's a paragraph, so we're not going to read it. 
I try to condense it um, somewhat. And I probably missed a lot when I did that, but I, I condensed it to, to what I understood he was saying. God's personal response to his creatures does not mean his essence is unchangeable. God is in relationship with us. He's a relational God who feels things. But in these relationships, he has perfect freedom. He is never inconsistent with his nature and his essence. What we do see in our chapter and in the rest of the Bible makes it clear that unchangeableness does not mean he's not affected by our human struggles. God grieves over soul. He cares what happens. He is affected and responds to his people's cries when they were enslaved. Jesus, God incarnate, weeps in sorrow at Lazarus's tomb. He's angry with the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees toward wounded, broken people. We see him crying in sorrow over Jerusalem, even as they rejected him. God cares what happens to you and me. Our circumstances, our obedience, our sin, he notices them and is affected by them. But his wisdom, his power, his goodness and truth, his holiness, and his love never diminish. The next question we can and should ask is how is it then, if he's this kind of a God, that you and I, women created in the image of God, but broken, <clears throat> sinful, willful people, live in relationship with such an awesome God? Well, God himself has made a way. And that song that we sing, um, and it's mighty sweet, and it's Jesus. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the obedient son, the one who came and willingly offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, taking on a body like ours, yet without sin, going down into death, our death, conquering it, and rising to an endless life. As we close, just listen to some of these phrases from Hebrews 10, 1 through 14. And I hope at some point um, you actually take your Bible and look at Hebrews 10, 1 through 14, because it's a wonderful um, explanation in the New Testament of all, of all of the kinds of things that happened in the Old Testament that seem so strange to us. Okay, these are phrases that, again, that I took out of this chapter, um, chapter 10 in Hebrews. The law can never by its sacrifices make perfect those who draw near. These sacrifices are actually intended to remind us of our sins. But it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But when Jesus came into our world, he said, a body you have prepared for me. Offerings give God no pleasure. I love that. That Jesus has a body just like yours and mine. And he honors God with it. And that's his call on us. 
to honor God with our bodies. That Rather, Jesus said, I have come in this body to do your will, O God. That is what the Old Testament points to. His offering of himself to go down into the depths of hell, to experience in his own body the penalty of our sin, and his rising again is what sets us aside to be his holy people and to grow into the holiness and works that he has purposed and planned for us. And, you know, this is what we celebrate this this season. Um, The sad story of Saul is countered with the glorious story of what Jesus has done to make it possible for us to be his people. Coming incarnate in a physical body, God incarnate, to make it possible for us to be able to do good works in our broken world with a renewed spirit from him. How about if we just pray now? Father, thank you for um, the clarity of your word as you um, help us to dig into it and to look at it. And Father, our hearts um, are heavy when we think of the kind of things that happen when we turn our backs on you and reject you. But Father, we rejoice We rejoice in your gift to us of Jesus. We're so thankful that you and he together are purposed to bring us into your family, to make us your daughters, to make us the vehicles for displaying to a broken world what real love and real goodness and real joy and real hope is. So, Father, as we enter this season um, of when, when the world, whether they recognize you or not, celebrate your birth, um, Father, help us to be uh, real representatives of you in the way we love and care and live among, among uh, a broken people in the old world. So thank you again for your great love to us. And that you've poured it out on us in your son, the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.